0: Welcome to the Artist Interview Series. In this podcast, we'll feature interviews with the brightest musicians and music instructors from around the world. Our goal is to provide meaningful conversations and insights into their creative process, to discover the inspiration behind the music, and to learn from the experiences of these talented musicians. Our host today is William Crawford a Lilly Theater Company drum instructor and assistant producer. So let's jump right in and get to know this week's inspirational
1: artist.
2: Hello everyone, Um, welcome to another artist interview. Um, We have our CEO, Dar Lilly's brother on the call right now from Austin, Texas. His name is Robert Lilly and he'll be our um, artist for today to do our interview. So, all right, Robert. Um, so, tell us where you're from.
3: Well, first of all, I want to say peace and blessings to everyone out there who I might mean, be listening to this at some point in time. Uh, I was born in Harlem, New York City, and I was raised in the South Bronx. But I had bounced around somewhat from one state to another. So, it's relative to me. But I consider my original context probably the most formative context for my development, that's New York City. Growing up there, it was a very fast-paced life. And even though I was a child, when I left, I, I saw many things that children in other areas of the country might not have been as exposed to, unless you come from a, a fast-paced environment like New York City, which
2: I don't remember if anything like New York City as it was, although I've not been anywhere else. That's cool. Um, what was it like for you um, growing up there? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Um,
3: my earliest memories were, you know, innocuous memories. Uh, I, I was, I remember saying with my grandmother and my father and my mother and a child. I remember toys. I remember, you know, just small things like learning how to get my shoe tied, but something transpired that really shaped or reshaped my, the narrative of my, of my life. And uh, it was the death of my mother, uh, so, so I have a life before her passing, and I have a life after her passing. That that's lost uh, in that in, in my, my time in New York City uh, before she passed. Yeah, I think we lived in a fairly typical life. You know, I had a mother at home who perfectly cleaned, and, and so we get structure my room. You know, according to her specifications, put my toys away, make my bed. You know, she protected me from the dangers outside the home. So, so there was some degree of, there was a barrier between the world and myself, uh, because of her presence and my, my, my siblings' life. And then after her passing, when I, I would say, uh, my, my memory is vague, but it's between the years of seven and nine, she passed as a result of, uh, complications with the kidneys and the, my life changed, um. My father was always present in the home. He was a hardworking man, and now he's got four siblings to care for and no, no spouse, no mate. So we went from living in a a relatively comfortable two-story home, brick home, in uh, in East East, uh, New York, East East South Bronx, and you know had a backyard, had a dog. Uh, walked to school, uh, walk to school with my mother—that kind of thing. We went from living in, a, in an environment like that, mixed community, to living. We had to move uh, because whatever the financial hardships probably have arisen. Uh, my father moved us to the South Bronx, and you know, this was a more blighted community. This was in the 1970s, and uh, it was difficult. Uh, the word blight best captures, I think, what I saw, you know, dilapidated buildings, uh, lots of drugs, heroin was you know, king of New York at the time, the schools were very disorganized, there was poverty, I mean, I, I didn't have a name for poverty, but what I now know in, in hindsight is that poverty was, was the prevailing you know, nature of all of our existence in the South Bronx. And my family was definitely, a, a, you know, in the, in the throes of it. I can remember uh, we lived in a building, and, and, and because of the drug use being so high in that community, a uh, uh, copper pipes were were taken from from basements in the building, and we didn't have anybody watching over the building, and superintendent. So somebody came and started over the copper pipes for them. We could, we didn't have any water running through the building, so I had to literally walk outside the building with two buckets to a fire hydrant to fill the buckets with water to bring back upstairs to put on a a uh, camping camping grill, propane camping grill because we didn't have a stove. And and we and we boiled our water there to cook food and to, to wash. And now this is in a a major industrialized city, a major metropolitan city, uh 1970, That that to me captures Probably the epitome of, of what life became like for us as a pastor. My mother was very unstable. Our father had to make a lot of concessions and adjustments. Uh, some, t- some we don't even really understand because I didn't really know how to ask the right questions before he passed away to get more understanding about the challenges we face you know, as a single father. Uh, so, yeah, that that. Yeah, the gangs. We didn't have gangs. We didn't call them gangs, but they were, they were crews of cliques, posse's, and neighborhoods. Uh, New York was very racially divided, so we had Italian neighborhoods, Jewish neighborhoods. Uh, the blacks and Puerto Ricans usually lived together, but that still didn't mean they really coexisted you know in a healthy way. So we had to learn how to navigate all of those spaces, which neighborhoods we couldn't go to, uh, you know, for fear you might lose your life. If you got caught in the wrong space or attack, and I could go on. But if anybody wanted to learn or just get a, a, a more, when I try to tell people about this, I tell them, Google an image of New York City in the South Bronx in the 1970s, and you'll see uh, what, I, what I'm talking about. I mean, it, was, it was unlike anything I've ever seen since, and I hope never to uh, experience, I hope no one ever has to in this country experience anything like
2: that again, although I know there's some very impoverished places yeah, on the other on states. Yeah, that seems like a hard life. Um, I took a class last semester about hip-hop, and they basically, like, they were talking, talking about how it was formed in the Bronx, and I just definitely, like, I definitely know, like um, like, back then, the 70s and 80s, there were gangs and people fighting and just, like, drugs and all that stuff so um how does um i know you're big into hip-hop and you're um write poetry and rapping and how is um how does hip-hop influence you oh
3: wow, that's a good question well first of all I, I consider myself a child of the hip-hop generation um I, I remember the first time i saw somebody break dancing on the corner, right, of the same neighborhood that I was just describing when I, I didn't get the name of the street, but the street was uh Avenue. And, and this was in the South Bronx. I went to the corner store and I remember turning the block and I saw some cardboard on the floor, some cardboard boxes on the ground. And I saw these I saw these kids, no little older than I was, actually sitting on their heads and I remember having this weirdest of uh, reactions to it like, what in the world is this? I had never seen anything remotely resembling what they were doing with their bodies on the concrete floor in the middle of the city. Um, so I got exposed to hip hop only through breakdancing in New York City. It wouldn't be until I left New York in the, in the, in the, in the 80s, early 80s, and I'm now residing in California, that I, I started tuning into this music coming through the radio. Uh, One of the first artists I heard was actually not even uh, a New York artist, although Sugar Hill Gang, of course, we heard that. But I heard another artist in California called Tommy T out of Compton, and his message was just as powerful as the message that uh, the the Sugar Hill Gang put out. Um, And he was talking about the same issues, only in a different context in California. Uh, He was talking about Chief Joe Gates and the Battle ranch. So you know, this music came out capturing the the, the images that were dominant in our community. Uh, like the you know, Sugar Hill Gang talks about broken glass everywhere, people kissing in the streets. You know, they just don't care. You know, that kind of message was exactly what we were experiencing. And it was like this this music gave us a chance to to not only just complain about what we were seeing but in some way not even probably fully understanding what the word protest meant it gave us a voice to protest it. and later on as i as i intuitively captured that that ability you know for what hip hop could allow me to do with my words i started crafting my own messages to articulate my own angst about the things i was experiencing now that I was becoming more conscious of the world around me, so hip hop for me has always been a music of protest. Although now, today, you know, there are many iterations of it, you know, and popular versions of it are not anywhere consistent with what I believe. Uh, you know, it started as it started, but I believe it started as. Uh, but I believe the music is a vehicle for the most marginalized people to express themselves, and so. I remember one time in prison, this station on the radio called Afro Pop. And I love this station because they would talk about, they covered they, they, they artists, hip-hop artists from all over the world. And I'm listening to rap. Now, I'm a kid from New York City and I'm listening to rap now. All over the world, Israeli rappers, Palestinian rappers, uh, German rappers, uh, Ukrainian rappers. I mean, just people all over the world. Expression themselves with them I didn't even understand what they were saying, but I understood the spirit of what they were saying. And it was just amazing to know that I'm a part of that. You know, I'm a part of that expression. I'm a part of that history. I think it's just amazing. And I and I and I'm still a part of it, even though I'm a much older uh, person today. Um, I still consider this
2: culture, this art form, very, very much germane to who I am as a human being. Yeah, I, I love the information that you put out with um, hip hop, and I definitely respect the um, genre very much. So, um, yeah, um, I know you started a um, nonprofit. Um, if you want to tell us about that. Okay, yeah, that's great. Uh, I'll just say that the, the idea for this
3: work that I began, which still is a part of my life, although the work does not exist in the same form that it originated in. Um, but it's, it still resonates, it still has an echo effect in society because anything that we do in this world just like you know you all know of music you hit a string and you, you make a tap on an instrument and it reverberates right it creates a vibration well the work that you did then still is vibrating in the world and, 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 and so I'm no longer um, you know as as I once was because it didn't, it, it didn't last like I had hoped it would in the form that it originated in but suffice that to say um, I was in prison, I was reading books about historical uh, change agents, and women who sought justice in our society, this long train of freedom fighters and this long train of people who, who believed in the ideal of liberty and wanted the full expression of that for all human beings in our society. I'm reading about these people studying their words and they were shaping the way I, I began to see myself, and see my connection to society, and see my connection to this people called African American people and Black people, and to this this idea called America. Um, and and I'm and I'm you know when I'm in prison, I, I as a young person, I had this notion that I wasn't a part of society, that I had been rejected, and so now I'm reconsidering that, you know. I realized that, you know, the world that I just described in New York City and the South Bronx, it was created by decisions or the lack of decisions made by people in authority. And my life was circumscribed by those decisions. I'm a part of society by default when I don't make, you know, when I don't make an investment. And so here it was, I'm in prison and I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? I'm trying to envision a world for myself, a place for myself in the world when, when the doors open up and so you know the idea comes to me I want to be like these people I'm reading about I want to I want to do something meaningful um and of course you know my ideas sometimes were stereotypical because you know we read these books a lot of the books that I was first reading highlighted one character and, and glorified him so a lot of my original ideas about leadership were you know, very uh um, masculine and very uh rigid in terms of ideology but It it was the the seedbed for what became this this notion that I could go home and I could actually engage with society and I could do something meaningful. And so I went home and I I wanted to work with men and women who had come out of prison. That proved far too complicated. You know, the competition from the world and its attractions proved too difficult for me. So now, to bring them together or bring them to me. So I stumbled upon this, this uh this idea it wasn't actually stumbled upon. I remember the book I read by Barry Lozoff called We're All Doing Time. Uh, he's, uh, he was a prison. Uh, uh, to, he was a yoga instructor. He taught, uh, he taught yoga and meditation in prison. And he would write letters back and forth. To the prisoners And one of those letters I read talking to a man who was encouraging. He said, if you wanted, he said, if you want to be something, find somebody who is the thing you want to be. Get close to them. And then show you how to become that. And then he also encouraged us to get out of prison and volunteer. He said you don't have to go get a job to do the thing, you know, find an organization and volunteer. So I took that to heart when I got home. I uh I served as, uh, you know, I've been to the Boys and Girls Club and I, you know, met a person there and I told them that I had a story that I like to tell to the kids. And you know, once the people started hearing what I was saying to the young people and the young people responding favorably. Uh, the world started getting around it, there was this guy who had a story, and, and, and they just, I kept getting phone calls, and one thing led to the next. I went to Licknight Basketball, I went to uh, the Recreation Center in one of the most impoverished areas of Abilene, Texas, where I was residing at the time. And it kind of just snowballed. And um, one day, I'm, I'm participating in an event, and I noticed that they had a gap in their services. Um, I had learned about that when I was in school, you know, this notion that sometimes organizations have kind of gaps in what they're providing to the community. So I said that they were they were missing the girls because it was a basketball event and they were missing girls underneath the age of, of, of 14 because you had to be over 14 to play. And all of those kids that weren't playing, they were engaged in behaviors that I thought were problematic. So I asked, hey, can I do something with these kids? And he said, "How yeah, about it. So I just came to the rec center and sat down and I found a couple of kids to talk to had a good conversation, so it kind of started out as a rap session, just kind of vibing with each other. The next week I came back, I ordered a pizza, a couple more kids came over and enjoyed the conversation. But in all this, we use, we use poetry or we use music uh, to, to engage them, so they enjoyed, you know, seeing this older guy rap and, you yeah. And talk to them about things that were you know, that were important to them, and then listen to them. And so that kind of built on it. That was the be- that was the bedrock of this whole idea of disciple three hundred and sixty. These peer support ministries grew um, out of that. We could that we could learn that the three hundred and sixty degrees of knowledge and building for life that everybody was a teacher and everybody was a learner. So, as a young person, could teach me something if I was humble enough to listen. And if you, were, if you could be wise even if you're youth and listen to me, you would learn something from me. And so we try to create a environment with that using the concept of no judgment, just loving, bringing people together to uh, to learn from one another and hopefully to build a stronger community.
2: Yeah, um, this, this is all very inspiring and I'm glad you got to be inspired by all these um, things to start this nonprofit. So, um yeah, we're about to play um, one of your videos um, talking about grief. So if you want to, you want to tell us a little bit about it before we play it?
3: Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, I've already indicated that in my life, I experienced some trauma with my mother passing. One thing I've learned um, since that time, I've learned a great deal about the, the idea of trauma. I've learned that oftentimes trauma can be compounded. You know, you've one event that transpires, and then another one. Occurs and if it's not processed, if you don't approach it with some kind of re- resolving uh, methodology, then you know you have this compounded uh, trauma. And what the, for me, you know, occurred was exactly that. You know, my mother died, and then you know, my father had to leave me with other people so he could just reassemble with you know what he could make for us as a home. Uh, I'm experiencing. Negative, uh, you know, negative interaction at school with teachers, with the students. I'm living in a community with with gun violence, and so like this is trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. And I never, no one ever came to me and said, you know, son, you know, going back to just my mother, this is how you grieve. So never having learned how to grieve, never learning that there was a a process through which one could go. And it's not linear and you know sometimes there's regression and sometimes there's progress but never having learned that i could never put to rest or put, make peace with the things that have occurred in my life and you know part of it also included being in prison uh and having relationships that i i came to form that were meaningful and then being separated from those people uh by my release it's, it's almost similar to going back in history and reading about the slaves in this country and how families were torn apart when um, you know, men and women were placed on this on the on the, on the uh, slave block and they were displayed like cattle and sold to the highest bidder. You know, mothers were torn from children, husbands were torn from wives. Um, these are some of the same emotions I've felt over the years as a result of being placed in prison and even leaving prison, leaving behind the people I met and also... You know, being separated far from the people I love, by like being sent to a far away rural community with no one you know, that I knew, uh, you know, that, that I grew up with, and then having to make, make, make a life for myself for how many years I would be there. So yeah, all, you know, grieving and learning how to, to walk through those feelings has been, I think, an important part of healing for me because, uh, I used to say, and this is a saying I came up with as a result of continued chronic re- kind of relapse, I asked myself, why do I keep going to the crack house to get counseling? Because that's what I felt like I was doing. I'd have these episodes and I'd go in there and use drugs and I'm dumping all my feelings on somebody that doesn't even really have an answer for me. And then it came to me one day I call it like a spiritual download. You're going to the crack house because you're not going anywhere else. When you're well, when you're not using, you're not going anywhere else to seek the healing that you need. And so that's what I had to actively do. Uh, and it's taken, you know, it's taken more adversity for that, for that visualization to happen. But, but I'm now today part aware of what, what steps we need to take in order to get better. And so a number of that video is going to be talking about some of the, some of those experiences that I just kind of, that we talked
2: be talking about just a minute ago. Well, I'm, I'm grateful you got this explanation. So, yeah, so we're going to um, show this video right now. Hopefully you will enjoy
0: My name is Robert Lilly, but all my friends call me Brother Rob, and I emphasize the word brother because today that's all I'm seeking to do for another is be a brother. I've been asked today to talk about grief uh, for this project, Tempered Steel, and it's the reflections of the formerly incarcerated persons. So the way I think I'm going to approach this is, um, initially when this was brought to my attention about grieving, one of the observations I made was, you know, I've had emotions over the years after my release from incarceration, and I've now been home for seven years, and approximately 17 years of my life have been spent in some inside some kind of institution. And so in the seven years that I've been home, I've had emotions, but I didn't always have vocabulary to describe those emotions. And so I've heard about a thing called the grieving process, but I wasn't necessarily under... Those were not thoughts that would come to my mind when I would have certain kinds of emotions that now I know are or were grief, grieving. So when I was asked to do this project and I was responsible for giving the first example, one of the things that jumped into my mind off the top was the grief that I felt in two instances that I think both relate to the same issue and that's friendships that I bonded with other men to form when I was incarcerated, men that became influences in my life in ways that my life has been radically transformed because of. These men, when it came time for me to leave from one facility and go to the not- another, I remember gut-wrenchingly crying my heart out uh, because I would miss them when I left them. These are men that I I had learned to tell my darkest secrets to, to share my worst fears, to dream dreams that others probably would say were impossible uh, to dream for someone like us. But these men and I, we shared that that common belief in the impossibility of, our, of what our lives could amount to provided we had the kind of supports outside prison. And so these men not only dreamt, dreamt with me, but we found ways to be creative inside the institution to create an environment that reflected our desire to succeed after our release from incarceration. These men I would identify as leaders, but nonetheless, uh, there were some that weren't leaders and I still had for them the same kind of enthusiasm and passion and love and, and longing uh, when I left them to return back to their association. That was the first instance. I would have been in one facility at Seagoville, pardon me, not Segoville. I was at Colorado City I have been there for approximately three years, and there were three brothers at that facility, uh, Albert Amir Parks, uh, Johnny Hatton, and Eric Ladaro Hopkins. These three persons, along with myself, we formed an organization called the Universal Temple of Peace, and it was our intent to call young men away from and out of the gangs and into a more dignified way of becoming a man education was was critical to what we were doing and and the and the bond that we formed with one another to do this work uh, I don't think we could have succeeded as we we did without without that kind of love and, and enthusiasm for the work and love for one another and so leaving these men was truly a hard thing because I was afraid where was I going into what and would I find men like this ever again? That was my that was my biggest concern. So when I left, uh, I did find others that I could find love for, and I found others that I wanted to keep in contact with. Unfortunately, many of the others that I came across after leaving that facility, we haven't kept in contact. But those men, we did. And so when it came time for me uh, to be released from imprisonment, not just go to another facility, I remember being here in the community and... Grateful for all the wonderful things that are now coming to my life in terms of freedom and liberty to dress as I wished, to go where I wished, to eat what I wished. Beautiful things, things that we dream of and we want so much when we're incarcerated along with having relationships and achieving some certain personal goals. But my heart was always heavy and still is because I found the most wonderful fellowship with those brothers when I was incarcerated, that and, and 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 although I say this with a bit of caution and hesitation, I have wonderful people in my life today that I love dearly. It's not the same. Um, I would equate it to like going to war with somebody, or you know, I have had female intimacy relationships, and usually it's not until after that first serious tiff or fight that we have that you start realizing how much that person means to you, or that person stands by your side when you go through a tragedy or a loss, that relationship becomes that much more qualitatively supportive and and, and profound. Same thing with men. Uh, I think, I have not been to war, but I've been uh, one who ran as a gang member in the streets and, and had loyalty for the brotherhood that we bonded uh, and formed in the streets, but. I learned later that I was false because we were doing things without knowledge. These men that I learned to love in the way that I loved them, they were special. And leaving them was never an option. I physically, I may have had to leave them, but emotionally and psychologically and spiritually, I was still there with them in that prison. And I wanted them to have what I have out here. And that's the opportunity to realize what God has given us to become uh, all that we can with this life that we have. And so, because I was the first one out, and many of them, I think the and the next one to come home would be seven years, well, actually, would be about three years. This is another gentleman, but he wasn't part of our close circle, but because he reached out to me when he was inside, I, I found a love for him and, and decided to support him. So I continued to write him. and He came home, but he was a part of our group, but not as intimately woven into it. And so, some of the others it took them more than more than several years to come home, and and just waiting for them to come home, hoping that they would get parole. Uh, all of that, that process opens up, I think, the same feelings that of loss and discomfort in a relationship that one would have when when you feel like something is not in your possession that you yearn to have. I wanted those men home, and I want them home with me now, because I believe that the same energy and enthusiasm we had for the cause that we stood for while we were incarcerated, if that energy were uh, released into the community, and I use that word uh, with no, uh, with, with the most sincerest intention, released. If we could release that energy, that dynamism, man, I think we could shake up the world. So I've stayed with them. I've been walking with them despite my uh, distance from them because I realized that they have made my life that much better because of knowing them. So and so in that way, uh, that's been a great experience with grief. Uh, a, a third example that I gave was one day I was flipping through some family photo albums, and I had this. <laughs> it was a annoying awareness that gradually um, wrapped its arms around me and help me as I'm flipping from page to page in this photo album. I'm looking at all my family and I'm watching the years go by and my picture is nowhere in in sight. I have very few images of myself as a young man with my family because for the most part of my uh, teens and and twenties and some of my thirties, I was incarcerated. Mind you, it was an installment plan incarceration. I would get out and I would come home I would come home and only return to the same behaviors and then return back to prison. And so as I'm looking at my family album, I notice that I'm not even there. And that, I think, also uh, could be properly identified as an an instance in which I experienced grief because I realized how much loss uh, has occurred in my life uh, as a result of my being incarcerated. And... I don't know if I can even convey to you what it's like to have someone who you identify as a family member who came from the same womb as, as as you, and yet you don't even really have a relationship with them, or you don't know how to have a relationship with them. And even in some instances, when they touch you, it doesn't feel like the comforting touch of a loved one, it feels like the touch of a stranger, and you hate that feeling because you realize that uh, so much time has been slipping away. So what I've learned about grieving is that there's stages in this process. I couldn't cite to you all of the stages right now, but I know that there's five stages. And as I recall reading about grieving, uh, the last point that I think was important for me to say was, if I don't have a vocabulary to describe my emotions, I'm having an experience, but I don't understand what I'm experiencing. I don't think I'm empowered under those circumstances to make a difference in my own life, to change the way I feel so that life can feel better, more comfortable, and I can be more well-adjusted. And even once I have a vocabulary to describe the feelings I possess, the next part then becomes, what is this experience, and how do I have it in such a way that I don't sabotage my victories or sabotage the the progress that I've made. And so I think learning about grieving, and this is what made me enthused about the project, I think learning about grieving and understanding it and and learning how the stages operate and learning that they don't, sometimes you repeat stages or you have to finish one cycle to go to the next cycle so that you can have closure. I think knowing that, takes away some of the desperation that sometimes can creep up in in my heart and probably others who feel like these bad times or these hard times or or whatever this energy is, this negative energy, I feel like it won't stop. It won't go away. And so if it won't go away, then I've got to do something desperately to change it. I think a lot of people return to behaviors that uh, cause them to repeat uh, their experiences with incarceration, recidivize. That's been my story. So my hope would be that through sharing the ideas that I'm sharing with you now in some way you can get a glimpse into the window of what it is to live inside someone like my mind, my, my mind. And I think that if you could just for a moment entertain some of the ideas I've shared, perhaps you may have more sympathy and empathy for people who lack the ability to share the words that I'm sharing with you and can't express ideas the way I'm blessed to be able to express my ideas. Because at the end of the day, I believe that what I'm doing now can be learned, but we have to have people to invest in us. And sometimes these mental and emotional instabilities and in, in somebody like my life, somebody that is a returning citizen, or a formerly incarcerated person who's re entering community. Those relationships, if he can't form them, he or she, their freedom is tenuous. So please uh heed these words and meditate upon them. And my prayers are that your mind is opened about what it is to be someone else that you're not especially someone who's had to endure trauma. And I do believe being taken away from your home, sent someplace far away that you're unfamiliar with, forced to deal with people that you don't know for years at a time, no access to relatives because you're too far for them to travel, only communicating by phone if you can or by letter if they write. And then finding a new family and then being taken away from that family, not because you've done anything bad, but because, you know, something wonderful is happening, but you can't share with them how that might cause somebody to have grief. Yeah. When it comes to my grieving and dealing with that grief, I think I'm doing better at communicating my feelings with other people. I have a, a group of men in my life today who, they know my secrets. Um, I, I realized that at some point that if I was going to ever fare well out here, I had to find men that I could identify with as I once identified with the men who I was incarcerated with. And it's been a process. But I now today have men who are genuine in my estimation. And so I rely on them, I trust them, and I share my thoughts with them. And that helps me cope. Even acknowledging that I have feelings and acknowledging that I need to work through these feelings, grief being one of those feelings, this I think is important as well. And then beyond that, you know, there are times when I don't handle it so well, just to be quite candid with you, that I I fall into despair and I find myself worrying and stressing. And it's those times when I'm most vulnerable uh, to repeat the errors of my past and Those are dangerous times. Those really are. But thankfully, I've been able to reach out even in those times to let somebody know, hey, I'm struggling. I'm not doing so good right now. And people have responded with love and compassion, and it's made things easier. One of the most effective ways sometimes uh, is just for me to distract myself through reading. And I love to read. And so reading a book about something that deals with the issue that I've been finding myself wrestling with You know, it increases my enthusiasm to want to change the issue or do something about it instead of just simply being impacted by it, being knocked off balance. And so those are the ways that I've been handling it. Redemption is an important idea to me personally because when I was incarcerated and I began to look at what my future could be, Well, let me back up. I remember uh, back in the 90s, they were debating whether or not inmates should receive certain kinds of amenities, like access to the commissary or certain products on commissary, lifting weights, that these things were privileges that were making prison a soft place and were coddling criminals and what was particular about the debate around this time was the language that they were using, <clears throat> the language that they were using to describe us. I remember vividly hearing talk about super predators. If we got access to ways we'd be super predators. Or if we were given education, that we would be educated criminals and that we didn't deserve this opportunity, that we were taking something away from the general population that we weren't entitled to because of the crimes we had committed. That language and that conversation, that dialogue, really offended me because even though they didn't use the name Robert Lilly, I felt very much that I was included in that discourse because I was, in fact, a part of the population of the incarcerated. And so I started to formulate in my head a response to that. And what I concluded was that I had to learn ways in which to validate my own humanity. I had to count. That meant that I had to find the motivation to come to the table. Now, mind you I'm incarcerated, so what table am I going to come to? There are no dignitaries entering into the prison. There are no uh, committees or boards that interact with inmates. And so the way I began this journey was I began to teach other men in prison my thoughts, share my ideas. I would read this information and I would formulate my response in hopes that one day I would be before an audience and I'd be able to say the things that I was saying to them then, later to others. And one of the terms that I clung to, to, to battle this dehumanizing discourse that was discounting uh, our humanity, and I mean that in this sense, If you call us super predators or you call us animals or whatever negative language you use to depict us and you call us and you say that what you're doing inside these facilities is corrections, that kind of discourse doesn't lend itself to the ideal of correcting someone. If you say that these institutions are designed to rehabilitate us, then identifying us as unworthy of resources that by their very nature make the potential for our lives that much more possible then you you almost cut us off at the knees before the race begins and so I believe that we all deserve an opportunity to reclaim our humanity to be redeemed And I look at the word redemption from the perspective that a price has to be paid in order for a thing to be transacted. And so for me having the leadership role that I had in prison, translating that into leadership in the community I feel like I've got to use my life as a sacrifice to show other people what's real for other people that don't have the ability to do what I can do to share ideas. And it has meant for me sacrificing time and energy that could very well be better spent to build up my life personally, but I feel like I would be shirking my responsibilities to all the to all the men that I had left behind and other people that represent uh, this reality in our society today. And so redemption for me is about me reclaiming my humanity, sacrificing my time, my energy, and my talents to... Advocate for a cause that, in my humble opinion, is the issue of our century, mass incarceration. And more of us need to learn how to advocate for ourselves so that people can understand what this system is producing in our lives. To me, that is the redemption process. When we teach other people to reclaim their lives and to be spokespersons for others that can't speak for themselves.
1: And we're back.
2: Um, this um, love the inspirations and the um, talking about grief and um, just everything about the video. And it's it's such an inspiring thing from someone like you that um, has went through this hard life and everything. So, um, are we LTC um, Little Theater Company is about to have an opening night of "We Are the Mass Incarceration" play. Um, what's your role in that play? Yeah, my sister. And I want
3: to say again, you know, peace and blessings to all of those that are out there. And I'm grateful for this opportunity to of some, some service uh, to the society that I am very much a part of, although I'm currently incarcerated. My role in this is uh, that I have been captured by my sister and believe very much in my abilities as a writer to create the voices of some characters who are experiencing the realities of incarceration, and in some instances, addiction, because the possibilities go hand-in-hand, hand, along with mental, mental health and challenges. And so I've written a number of monologues to express some of the things that I'm seeing personally, some of the things that I've been through, and uh, some of the things that I'm learning through my reading that, that are real uh, to the reality of, of mass incarceration in the 21st century, and so we're just trying to create a, a voice that humanizes this experience
2: and makes visible people that are oftentimes invisible. Yeah, um, um, actually, I'm about to get a ticket to see this play, so um, okay. um, I'll be flattered to um, come and um, see this play and really enjoy it. Um, so what's your biggest lesson from um, 2022?
3: My biggest lesson from 2022 is this, and actually it's been the lesson I learned, you know, incrementally going back to 20, 2019, bringing it on into, to, you know, I heard a, I heard a gentleman once speak at a conference and he said, a lot of children today are not learning how to develop stick to uh, And that was a word that he kind of contrived, and he said, that it was the idea of being able to stick with something, even when it's difficult, to 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 hold on, even through a hard challenge, and prevail. Um, you know, I've talked about alcohol and drugs being a part of my story, and you although I do identify myself as a person in long-term recovery uh, from addiction and other behaviors that are not productive, uh, I realize today that. The drugs and alcohol are not the problem. Part of the problems are systemic and societal. Part of the problems are internal and perceptional. And And so for me, the biggest lesson I've learned in 2022 is how to walk through the storms of life without falling apart. How to be able to better manage and cope with the challenges that arise in life because life is going to share for every one of us. And you know, I had this fanciful notion at one time that I could get enough money or enough power or enough influence and somehow I would avoid the challenges that every human being by virtue of being on this earth experiences. And that was a fanciful, a notion. It's just not real, right? So if I had to purge myself with that and I had to replace those false ideas with more concrete you know, notions of what it means to walk on two feet in this world. Uh, and the big thing for me is community. Having community in my life, which is the antithesis of being a prisoner. A prisoner is isolated from the world, and community is, is what being in society is about. So this this opportunity to be a part of this play is about being a part of community, being heard. Uh, prison potentially. Separate our voices, cut our voices off, silence our voices. And this opportunity uh, is played. This
2: play gives me a chance to be heard and get the voice to other people as well. Well, um, I'm glad that you learned um, a lot of things from 2022 and hopefully um, get, um, have a better year in 2023. Um, so we're going to show another video basically talking about your life. So um, if you want to um, explain a little bit about it before we show it.
3: Yeah, like I was saying, this was this was a during a time when I was in the throes of some upheaval in my life. Um, my father, I believe, was he had already passed, I think, at that time. And I was, it, it wasn't just my father passing, it was a combination of poor decisions that I, had, that I had accumulated over the course of time. Um, not being able to Walk in the world as my true self. You know, kind of, kind of fear, a fear of rejection, fear of being, you know, perceived as uh, ineffective, you know, being a loser. Many of these thoughts were dominating my mind at the time uh, in an unhealthy relationship, with the person also was a, was a, was an active user, and uh, I was trying to make we thought, you know, uh, we, we, thought we called love work, and it wasn't working. So this was a very, very difficult time in my life. I think, I think it was the culmination of all of these bad decisions finally coming to our head. Uh, I found myself uh, in legal trouble. I was currently being uh, in the process of being prosecuted for. Violation of the law for protective order in that relationship that was abusive, where I had become abusive. I'm proud of to say that, that it was the reality of my, my time and that, you know, that team in my life. And, you know, the, the, the wheels had fallen off. The woman that I had been with for six years and thought that we were going to go forward, and again, it was an unhealthy relationship, so I was really living in the future. Um, but it was what I couldn't break free from. I had become codependent. We both were. And then on top of that, you know, we got together again. I was like getting out of jail. And she left me. Things fell apart for me. I, just, I had to break down. And uh, I got in my vehicle, and I, and I decided to drive around, you know, running from place to place to, to try to slake my conscience, putting alcohol and drugs on top of my my sorrow. Uh, found myself at my university and my, my alma mater, and uh, the students out there, and you know, I, I wanted to engage with them, have a conversation with somebody, you know, but they were afraid of me, and, and when I realized they were, I got back in my vehicle, but uh, sadly, someone had already called 911. And, and rightfully so, it was late at night, and he was the stranger to them on the campus. I think they didn't know, even though I did try to express the type student, that reality and they were within their rights to, to have me question what, what was I doing. So uh, I, I decided to, I made a fatal decision that night. Um, 30 seconds turned into a 30 year sentence. Uh, in a quick flash, I decided when the officer approached the vehicle to drive by them, thinking erroneously that in a, in a moment I would, I would get to the corner and somehow they would leave me alone. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, I, I proceeded to drive away at a higher rate of speed, gradually, but the picking of speed, salience, you know, of speed and, and, and I made a series of, of, of unwise and reckless decisions that night that uh, could have cost me far more than the 30 years, sentence, and it could have done more harm than just a wrecked a vehicle, and you know, even more ruined life uh, with more legal troubles. Uh, but God didn't see it that way. But that it didn't happen like that. Uh, I was uh, allowed to go to the hospital after uh, the break, and I walked away from the from the hospital. The next that evening, going into the next morning, which was kind of like late morning, going into the beginning of the early morning, I remember crying out to God, just saying, uh, "I'm not going to make it out here." You know, when I was with this young lady, she was kind like of my buffer between my own bad choices and the consequences. And so it was I for her. And now without her, I felt very vulnerable and alone. And so I was at my wit's end. Thankfully, I had another friend at that time, where I, I reached out to, him. she had her father come and pick me up. And I, I remember expressing to them, they didn't know anything about what had transpired. I said to them, uh, "I'm not going to make it. I'm going to make it out here." I think I need I need, to, I need to go somewhere. And within I would say an hour, uh, this gentleman, his name is Mr. Miller, he was out making some kind of personal run and he called me on my phone and told me to come outside. I went outside. And there was two young men uh, who were engaging him and he was telling me he wanted me to hear their message. But these two young men were from a ministry in another city, a ministry that fashioned itself as a ministry for homeless people addicted to drugs, but I qualified. Uh, and so they would they invited me to come right, right in the to there to their home in San Angelo, Texas. The ministry was called the Joshua 1-2 Fellowship. And at the time, you know, I said, I was going to go. They wanted me to come right now. They were really, you know, they, were, they called it fishing. So they were out fishing. They were selling the, their product, which was banana bread and tamales. That's how the ministry supported itself. And so they were inviting me to come back because, you know, when, they, when you come back to the house with somebody you know, you found out there on the streets, it was, it was a sign that you know, the ministry was succeeding in its mission. But I told them I didn't, I, I wanted to wait a day because I wanted to pack my the I was still very materialistic. I love clothing. I love to dress. I had a few personal items still left in this world and I wanted to gather them and bring them with me so I could at least present myself well with the uh, and so they, they looked at me and I could tell it, but man, he's back up." I knew in my spirit I said, "I'm coming," because I felt like I heard God telling me, "You're safe to go there." And so I did. And for eight months, I stayed at this home, making tamales, uh, selling them at the front of a dollar store. Uh, it wasn't the prettiest place. It was it was very difficult. Uh, there were a lot of troubles. It wasn't the perfect experience. It wasn't a clean, immaculate ministry, but it was, a, it was literally for me, it was the last house on the block. And uh, when I got there, you know, they, they, they helped me. You know, I had a place to live and I had a place to think and kind of recalibrate what, what was I doing. And I think, you know, I do think, but I know for a fact that was, uh, that's the place where I am truly saved for me. Uh, I, allowed, I allowed Jesus to come into my life for the first time in my life. Uh, I had given lip service to the notion of being a believer. In all actuality, I had never truly opened my spirit and said, okay, come on in. Like, he's knocking on that door, saying, come in. And I said, okay. Um, and that began this journey, you know, this new journey. It wasn't clean. It was still sloppy. Uh, I still made mistakes. Uh, for the eight months, I stayed sober, but I did relapse which led to my next transition to another location. But, but that video was captured in that moment when I was excelling and they saw a favor with me. So they, gave, they showed me favor. Uh, I let me have many concessions. I was able to work to pay my bonds, which kept me out for as long as I did so that I could ascend some degree of life uh, before I had to be accountable for my actions.
2: That's um, great information. Um, we'll... Um Definitely great information for the video, so um, we're gonna show the video right now and we'll be back.
0: Testimony, 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 what? Testimony, 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 what? I wanna give Jesus Christ all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise for the salvation of my soul and for the forgiveness of all my many sins. My name is Robert Tyrone Lilly, and this is my testimony. I grew up in New York City of the 1970s. The Bronx, New York, was not a very good place to raise an innocent child. My earliest recollections are of extreme poverty, blight, filth, crime, and fear. You know something is wrong with your worldview when one of your most vivid memories is of desiring to own your first switchblade for protection. I was not a violent kid. In fact, I was quite smart but the conditions under which I was born required, me, required of me a certain kind of movement driven by both fear and anger. I held those two emotions very close, like one would keep a true friend. The most devastating thing to shape these formative years was the death of my mother, Darcel Green. My father was her first lover, and with him she bore four children out of wedlock. I was the oldest. I had two brothers and one sister, My youngest brother is now deceased. He died from an overdose on crack cocaine in 2008. As a child, I was fortunate, compared to many of the other children I would come into contact with after my mother died. We had a home, a dog, toys, adequate food, and other creature comforts. However, once she passed away, my father was forced to fend for us without the support of a live-at-home caretaker. This is where things began to come apart at the seams. We would have to move eventually from our home to an apartment in a much poorer side of the Bronx. My new environment became the seedbed for much of the later corruption that my life would be shaped by. Albeit, it would take many years before I I would cave to the pressures of the impoverished lifestyle of the inner city. Like the rodents and the trash that was piled in our alleys, My anger at the loss of a parent and the lack of understanding as to why would build and cover me up, eating away at my heart until I became stubborn, bitter, and isolated as a child. It was in the year 1982 my father, after winning a settlement related to my mother's untimely death, decided to move us all from New York to California, Inglewood, California to be exact. Let's just say life on the West Coast was no better than on the East Coast. In time, I would couple my already rebellious nature with the street savvy spawned by my new peers. Two young men, Crypto and Shermhead, both gang members, would disciple me into a life of gangbanging and drug dealing that would come to shape the next 25 years of my life. I started entering juvenile facilities almost from the very beginning of my arrival in LA. With every experience in jail, and encounter with law enforcement, my anger with society grew. I began to hate anybody who challenged my desire to use drugs and escape into the shadows of this subculture that I had begun to cling to as my new and true family. I wanted no parts of a home that I felt alienated me from my past and a desire to simply make sense of what had happened to my mother. My father worked all the time and my stepmother and siblings became my warden and guards. I felt like I was in a prison already. Their combined oppression was enough to drive me into the streets and that is what I would do every time I had to face their aggression. I ran away and ran away and ran away. Running became my all in all solution, my panacea. And if I could not literally run away, then the next best alternative would be to run emotionally. That is where drugs and sex would come in. 1984 through 1989, the crack years. I was 14 years old when my stepbrother Douglas first introduced me to crack cocaine. And it would alter my my destiny. The first time I took a hit, I felt like all my problems had been removed, gone away. There was, however, one slight matter that complicated this solution. The feeling went away too quickly. I had to keep getting crack in order to stay happy or feel better. Crack cost money, and at 14, the only way I was going to get money to feed this habit was to sell it or steal. Stealing was my first option. Both means of supplying my demand led to multiple arrests and eventual imprisonment. It would be in a youth prison that I would learn of the religion of al-Islam or the lifestyle of the Muslims, being a young, confused young man. Having never really been trained or raised to value Christianity, I was a prime candidate for the angry message of the black Muslims who saw white society As the bedrock of the problems black people like me and my family have been crippled by i dove into learning this message and became a fairly competent advocate of it as a student of islam i would have to take a position against christianity and that was easy to do i felt little connection to jesus as a savior and for that matter even less to him as a god the combination of historical depictions of white abuse of the gospel as a tool for black dominance further enraged me and prejudiced me against reading or studying a book that, I, that, that had been misused to validate the abuses of slavery. It would take years for me to circumnavigate, to get around the vast space between that position and where I am today as a believer in Jesus Christ, as both my savior and my God. But thank God I'm here. One thing about life is that we are always changing and growing change is inevitable. I am very much a work in progress. The main difference that separates today from yesterday is that I am now like the clay in the potter's hands. This is the message that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. I will give you my message there. So I went down to the potter's house and saw him working with clay at the wheel. He was making a pot from clay, but there was something wrong with the pot. So the potter used the clay to make another pot. With this, with his hands, he shaped the pot the way he wanted it to be, Jeremiah 18, one through four. In my past, I wanted to shape my life the way I best imagined it. I had all these plans that I would contrive while I was in prison, and I envisioned how I would make them come into reality upon my release. Ultimately, with each step I took under this mindset, the more the truth of the powerlessness of my life over, over my life, excuse me, of myself over my life became glaringly clear. God is in control. My effort minus prayer is a recipe for pain, delay, and frustration. Today, today, I'm 47 years old now, and I have lived such a meandering life filled with one wrong choice after another. This winding path, no matter its shape, is always overseen by an amazing creator who loves us and wants the best for his children and takes that meandering path and designs his plans by it with each line. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven through 12. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven through 12. This inspires me today. God has been calling me for many years. Regrettably, I have taken a long time to answer the call. Nevertheless, there is still hope and a cause for joy. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Why? Because he has proven himself to me time after time. Today, after another bout with Satan, I'm back on my feet, thank God, and life is looking up for me. I'm a resident here at the Joshua 1-2 Fellowship in San Angelo, Texas, where I have come into contact with the gospel as presented through the lived experiences of other men and women like myself. Men and women who have been ravished by sick decisions, influenced by Satan through his tools, drugs and alcohol. And although these are the symptoms, their effects upon our lives have been devastating. God through this ministry, has lifted the covering over my eyes that kept me from seeing and properly understanding the message of Jesus Christ. I have an entirely new faith vocabulary as a result of these new ears he has given me to hear. New words and ideas like spiritual warfare, sinful nature, agape love, pestis, or trust for God, have entered into my life to give me a deeper appreciation for the life-saving teachings of Jesus. I have a yearning to read the Bible and it is no longer confusing to me. I have been freed from the bondage to chemicals and he is cleansing me in so many other ways as well. My relationships have begun to be restored and my family is being reinforced. I am employed and employable, and I just received word that I cleared a background check for another better paying job, one with benefits and an amazing schedule. I'm still going through the winds and storms that arose in my life prior to coming to San Angelo, but I walk with a confidence that is the outgrowth of a firm prayer life that I've learned here. I know today that drugs and alcohol do not change things. God does. May I close with the words that Jesus is the reason for everything that is good happening in my life today. And I thank him and I love him. And I'm so grateful for every wonderful opportunity he's given me to be restored back to his,
1: my rightful place in his kingdom. In Jesus name I pray,
2: amen. And we are back. A lot of great information from the video and definitely like how to explain about how God is in your life. Um, definitely, um, he's only just a good thing for you. Just um, I know you're going through a lot of hard times right now, but um, if you believe in him and believe that he's the savior and everything, he is your father, there you go. You'll have a way better life just by believing in him and stuff. Because I may just you know, correct one element of what you said. I agree with everything you said, with
3: the exception of one. I'm actually not going through hard times right now. Granted, I'm in prison. But in all actuality, I'm free than I've ever been in my entire life. Because what I've learned in this moment is that freedom is not geographical. You know, Freedom is not about the circumstances that I'm, I'm residing in. You know, freedom can't even come from man. You know, freedom is, is beyond... This realm of things is inward. And when I learned that there's, there's a life in me that wants to thrive, it doesn't need the, the, the optimum circumstances for it to have it. its, it's meant to be manifest. It just, I just need to, uh, I need to surrender to it and let it flow. And so even in here, I have, I have an abundant life. Yes, it is challenging, but what I've learned. I said my lesson in 2022, there's no place that I'm going to go and I'm not going to face challenges in this world. What I've got to learn how to do is I need to walk through them with dignity and respect. And that's what I've been failing at because I didn't have that stick to the that i talking to you about having learned from that speaker. So today, I'm learning how to see things with, with, with clearer eyes. Uh, and and by, by, by doing that, I, I, I see even in this moment, great promise and opportunity. This is where i've become more committed to my my hopes for being a writer an artist a creator so but you know I, this is something i've I tried my hand at for years I, i've written other pieces i've written other you know prose and things of that nature but i found a deeper level of my own voice here uh, and i don't say that because i want to redeem prison i don't believe prison can be redeemed no i believe that any circumstance that one finds their purpose and meaning for life, it can be
2: it could be it could be transformed by that by that realization. Yeah, I definitely understand that. I'm glad you really think of it that way and it'll it'll really help in the long run. Um, so how does it feel to come back home in April? Well, wow,
3: that's a that's a really fantastic question. Now I'll just say this here. I I'm gonna this may sound a little odd, but I do one day at a time. I get up, I have a routine, I'm very focused on the things that I do intentionally every single day. I have a study regimen. Uh, I, 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 I wish I would be doing a few more push-ups, but in um, you know, that area I can improve it. But other than that, I have, a, I have a discipline that I'm focused on every day that entails reading and studying and you know, filling my time with positive uh, interactions with the men around me. I'm actually uh, in the program that I'm currently residing in. I, I have a leadership role where I'm, I'm the orientation leader. So I'm responsible for expounding on uh, the material that they give us as the solution to many of the challenges that we face, when they to of whether it come criminal thinking or whether it be addictive behavior. So I'm constantly developing this material and trying to articulate it to the men around me so that they can. Have moved from pre-confrontation to confrontation on that process of change. Um, So yes, to say all that said, I'm busy, and by being busy, I really haven't had a lot of time to like feel what I might be feeling what people think I might like should feel at this time. I think I'm probably not going to feel that giddiness that uh, because I've been out of prison before, released from prison before. The way I'm feeling about things right now is. I feel like when that door opens up, I'm going to step back into the life that I had before I can, which was a, this was a sort of from, aside from the difficulties I described that led up to my challenges, uh, I had begun down the road when I was rebuilding the, the Robert Buck that, that, that was the founder of the, the nonprofit, the Cyprus Three Hundred and Sixty 6 support ministry, right? I had begun to build a relationship with people in my community that gave me a sense of self-esteem and, meeting, Right, um, I was doing. I was volunteering. I was. I was helping people in my community. I, I came alive again, and so I, I've not stopped that since I've been here. So I, I feel like you know what, I'm still alive. I'm gonna walk out that door. I'm sure when I hug my people and the people that are going to be there for me on the other side, it'll be a different experience. And I can't really, I can't feel that just yet. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, it's not, it's not exactly real to me, too. I walk on the other side of this door. And then I think one other thing I want to say about that is this. I think part of why why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling, which is, you know, sometimes if I could give a word to it, I would say I'm feeling grounded. Uh, And and the reason reason I'm feeling grounded is because I've learned a lot about how this reality called prison and criminal justice and corrections, how that circumscribes an individual's life. As I said to you before, I got a 30-year sentence. I completed three years of that sentence before the parole, 3.5 years of that sentence. I'll have four years when I'm released. That means that I'll have 26 years left on parole. And parole is not freedom in the sense of being a complete citizen in our society. So I realize that there's so much work still to be done to, to right the wrongs that I believe are inherent in uh our policies as it concerns persons who are being punished for quote unquote criminal behavior um so yeah i am very i have a practical outlook on the future i'm not i'm not daunted by anything i'm not feeling hopeless i feel feeling very committed to the idea that we've got a lot of work to do and i want to be a part of that work i want to get i want to beat the drum i want to rally the people i want to raise the cry and i want i want to bring more attention to what's happening because i don't believe this is
2: right you know, I don't believe what's going on. It's right. Um, that's great stuff that you're um, giving to us and everything. And definitely um, just great words from you and everything. So um, going back to hip hop, um, I know you're a rap artist. Well, kind of like a half rap artist. Is there anything you'd like to rap for us?
3: Okay, so what you what you're asking for me is you know you me to share some of my skill sets. That's what that is. Okay, all right. So you know, I love to I love to share one of my pieces that I've written. Um, it's a piece that you'll you'll get the meaning of it as it relates to everything we've talked about. I think it captures best you know the commentary that I've given you thus far. It doesn't necessarily have a, a title. It's just a it's just an ongoing. Uh, Statement and I want you to pay heed to it as you hear the words. What's the answer to this question? I want actual facts. No guessing. The lesson is to use your head. And you're laying it, but did you make this bed? Who made the ghetto? Who built it up? Who prepared this meal we sit and sell? We did They said divide and conquer like Frankenstein. They created a monster. 500 billion is our power somehow or other we don't have no power? Loyalty, who knows the meaning of this? Why does ignorance still need bliss? I challenge you, discard your complacency. Let's mobilize and start our own agency. Blacks must do for self. You said it, for the day I don't regret it, and the struggle I'm the better to better get to where I'm ready. Call me Jack in the Beanstalk. I'm trying to make the giant, with I walk in my talk, you know I'm from New York. Black folks still want to compromise, but anything less than redress is like suicide. And you know we fought for revolution and restitution, so the solution ain't inclusion. I want my piece of the pie, here on this earth, and not the sweet by and by. But that don't mean I don't believe this in the sky, I just believe we've been denied. So, based on that perception, we he kept another lie, last on the food chain, last in line, last to employment. Maybe that's why we're behind.
2: Maybe that's why we'd be that's why we be so dead fun. <laughs> man, that's <laughs> one and only. Yeah, um I definitely um I um I played with um Dar and like she rapped a little bit of stuff and you were writing stuff about her and she got that from you. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome, man. Yeah, probably with... Yeah, she did she did a fantastic job. Yeah, she really did. I can uh...
3: catch the cadence and all of that. I I could be much more expressive when I'm face to face. But I'll tell you this here. I love I love this art form. I love words to me, words are like colors to a painter. You know, the more words that we acquire, the more elaborate the images that we can create. And so I try to create with my words images that can you know, appeal to the hearts and minds of, of the humanity of the people that I want to touch. This piece that I just shared with you is an expression of the things that have disturbed me over the years. It's not an expression of the totality of where I'm at this moment, but it is a part of my journey. And, and so, my hope is that as, as time progresses and I, and I begin through my sister to get connected to people who who value, you know, who value you know, this expression. But I might even have now more time to add something to this world in terms of my creativity and my art uh, through through the use of rap and hip hop because before I leave this world, I want this world to know I was here. Uh, That would be my greatest offering to to, to leave something that others might be able to say, you know, I learned something from him. He was here. Robert Lilly was here. And this was his story. It's not the story of everyone, but it's my story. And I want to tell that story because I think that story is important. And I also think that story is too... Is, is, there's so many other stories that are like it. And the only thing that makes Robert different from so, so many other people like him in this condition is that he has the blessing of the words.
2: Not everyone has these words they can say. And so that's my offer to the world. Yeah, that's... Um, like, once again, God made us different human beings and stuff and we have our own um, significant um, appreciation of ourselves and everybody should be appreciative of um, what individuals do so yeah that's great stuff so um, we're going to the last question so what are some parting words you would like to leave our listeners with
3: I would say let's not make the same mistakes that we made it in the past as a people. And when I say as a people, I'm not talking about one group of people, I'm talking about all of us as people. Um, I think we need to re-examine what it means to be a loving human being. I think we need to expand the notion of what love can embrace. And I think we need to work more diligently to bring folk into conversations, difficult conversations about difficult subjects uh, like racism, that I think we need to become more adept and skilled at try to include others in these conversations instead of the typical suspects so, so to speak, you know, don't And my hope is that we can begin to make some headway in rectifying some of the the ills that I'm witnessing on this side here, of some of the lack of humanity. Just recently, Tyree Nicholas. You're going to probably see that video tonight. Um, you know, that's a classic expression of the thing I've seen all my life. You know, that someone can be so callous. And, and, and what's interesting about this incident is that the officers are black, but it doesn't matter because what they divide is a notion that there are people. Or persons, i.e., black males in particular, who can be qualified by this idea of criminality, and once that label has been imposed on them, their lives are acceptable. They're almost a human waste, and we can just step upon them and throw them away. And in this instance, this boy's life was literally thrown away. I've seen that all my life. I've I've, I've yelled from the top, my lungs trying to bring attention to it. I'm not yelling in that way any longer, but I'm still trying to bring attention to it because what's happening to me, that is but an expression, what's happening to me, that is just another expression of it. And so my prayer is that more folk would become invested in this cause and see the connectivity between their lives and our lives. Dr. Martin Luther King said that there's no one who can keep another down without staying down with them themselves. Right? So, we're all in this together and I hope and pray that we can more and more grow in our common understanding of what
2: challenges we face in the 21st century and we're to do that. That's um that's wonderful words and I'll definitely take that to heart. So um Robert thank you so much for being part of this interview and taking your time um to um to be part of the interview and being the artist for um Today And um, you're just very inspiring and incredible person and hope everything goes well with you. And um, God bless, man. i say this is part
3: of um, You know, I'm a reflection of all the lights that have been shown in my life. So what I am today is because of all the people that didn't give up on me. This is what gives me the hope to, to, to keep loving and keep trying. And, you know, I'm literally the love back to life my sister and so many other people including you ma'am by giving me a vehicle to express myself so thank you and thank all of you that are part of the L D C. God bless you peace and blessings and we say you came in
2: peace and we leave in peace. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So um we'll see you next time.